Um, hi, I'm looking for uh, Richard Mercer. No, not here. I'm sorry. Ah, no problem. Thanks so much. Sorry about right. that. Thank you. Richard Mercer isn't in the phone book. Um, trust me. This doesn't really tell us much because I'm not in the phone book either. But you have to look, don't you? At the very least, we're going to come across some interesting people. Well, that's an annoying ringtone, isn't it? <laughs> If you are a telemarketer or solicitor of any purpose, oh. please hang up and remove our phone number from your oh, list. I think that's referring to me. Otherwise, press zero and leave a message oh, after the beep. I think I need to hang up. Thank you. Oh, it sucks. <sighs> Damn my artistic ethics. Maybe it's just me, but the idea of freely advertising your landline number feels like an antiquated idea, you know? Landlines now are just for cold calling surveys and telemarketers and... Apparently me. But that means the people who have a landline, they know that they're able to be called. And if I read into that just a little bit, they're willing to have a conversation with whoever that is, as long as you're not simply cold calling survey or a telemarketer, which I am. Um, hi, uh, my name's Tom Hogan. I'm just looking for Richard Mercer. No, not at this address. Ah, yeah, and... Um... Well, there's this other thing I have to do every single phone call due to the nature of recording a phone conversation for a podcast. Yeah, uh, could I... Could I Richard Mercer's. Got it. Um, could I just ask one teeny tiny favour? Um, it's yeah. super small. You don't have to do anything. This is, it's going to sound really weird, but I just need your permission to record this conversation. Uh, nothing, nothing weird, I promise. Uh, it's just uh, because I'm looking for Richard Mercer, I'm documenting the results, and I basically need your permission to have that documented, you know? Does that make sense? No, but uh, there's nothing wrong with my answer. Okay, great. There's so, definitely no Richard Mercer here. Okay, great. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, there is another Mercer in Denmark, though. Ah, uh, Denmark. Okay, great. Oh, yes, I've got it on the phone, phone book here. Thank you so much. Righto, fine. Okay, bye. Bye. In our quest to find the long-lost radio host Richard Mercer, we're making sure we leave no stone unturned. And as it's only episode one, we have to start with the stones that are easiest to move first. Hello? Um, hi, my name is Tom Hogan. I'm just looking for Richard Mercer. No, it's not this number. Oh, my number. Okay, sure, sorry. Could I, could I um, get your permission just to legally document that answer? <laughs> sorry, I know it's really weird. Um, just permission that, that, it, that answer exists, I guess. Um, oh, I'm telling this isn't the right number, so you do whatever you like with it. Bye. Thank you so much. I mean, fair enough. My name is Tom, and I'm making a theatre show with my friend Bonnie, all about love songs and the radio host, Richard Mercer. The problem is, uh, he's a pretty hard guy to find. This is Missing Richard Mercer. By the way, if you don't know what's happening, or you skipped the prologue, I highly recommend going back and listening to it. You can't just tee off at hole one. You have to walk through the clubhouse first. Why does he call? Nah, Karen. He's probably been on your mind all day, has she? Uh, pretty much, yes. Yeah, and life is good, I hope, Tim, for you and Karen? Uh, 
it has been. It's, it's one of those very strange situations where she was my very first love 19 years ago, and things separated us apart, and we've gotten back in touch, and things are exactly the same now as they were almost 20 years ago. Wow. Yeah. I love hearing tales like yours. And believe it or not, 19 years ago, I requested a song for Karen on this very radio station. Double wow. <laughs> Tim, that is just amazing. And a lot has happened in those 20 years for both of you, though. But the, the question I would love to ask is, are you both available? Uh, that's the tricky part. Right. So, yeah, we'll see what time brings. We'll watch the space. Yeah. Watch the space, exactly. Yeah. Oh, but, but how lovely the fact that you've just made contact again, though. Yeah. Tim, thank you so much for calling in and sharing. And uh, a delight to send a, a song out to Karen. The song Tim would send out to Karen was Ella Fitzgerald singing, Let's Do It, Let's Fall in Love. Classy. Anyway, I'm sorry to bring up a song we can't play due to copyright reasons. But actually, in the Fair Use Under Review Copyright Act, we can play parts of songs as long as we review and analyse the content of that section. So, birds do it, bees do it, even educated fleas do it. Let's do it, let's fall in love. This song is good. I mean, it does sound like a kind of pointed, passive-aggressive request from Tim to Karen. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. Bees do it. I just, I just don't think bees actually fall in love. But it does launch episode one perfectly. If this were, I don't know, academia, I'd have to start this podcast with the ancient history. You know, defining all of our terms and original sources. We could look at Sappho, the most famous lyrical love poet or the priestess Enheduanna, our oldest identifiable poet whose works of love and praise were set to music in ancient Mesopotamia. I could talk about Charles Darwin and the evolutionary comparisons for love songs in mating rituals, ethnomusical examples, and find traces of love songs in indigenous cultures. I could look to the ancient Chinese love songs, or hell, we could address the overtly erotic love songs in the Bible. And we still might, mind you. I am making this up as I go along. But it's funny and weird and interesting as those topics get. The Richard Mercer brand of love songs is a different beast altogether. And we do have permission to defy academia here. Because, um, well, it's not academia. I basically just don't want this podcast to be about me telling you things that I've learned. I could regurgitate and paraphrase a textbook. I highly recommend the work of Ted Gioia. But I talk enough as it is. It's worth pointing out that I don't want to talk to poets about love songs. Um, yet. Treating lyrics to songs with the same analytical eye of poetry can really demolish what a love song is. Let me show you. Let's say you come across a poem in a book and the second stanza features the following lines. I sat on the roof and kicked off the moss. Well, a few of the verses, well, they've got me quite cross. But the sun's been quite kind while I wrote this song. It's for people like you that keep it turned on. We can all agree 
That is bad writing. Well, a few of the verses, well, they've got me quite cross. Apart from the mundane repetition of the word well, and then the word quite in the next line. The words, they've got me quite cross, is such a lame way to rhyme with the word moss, don't you think? Is it just me? I'm quite cross. And that final sentence, it's for people like you that keep it turned on. It's for people like you that keep it turned on. That is horrific grammar. That makes no sense. Either an entire word is missing, or there's an extra one, or it's out of order entirely. It's people like you that we've kept it turned on for. That kind of makes more sense. But it's for people like you that keep it turned on. That doesn't say anything. It's not like a cool colloquialism like the words ain't no mountain high enough. As it is now, it's for people like you that keep it turned on. (sighs) Nonsense. But put it with strings and a guitar and a piano. I sat on the roof and kicked off the moss. Well, a few of the verses, well, they've got me quite cross. But the sun's been quite kind while I wrote this song. It's for people like you that it turned on I hope you don't mind I hope you don't mind how I put down in the words In the next verse, Elton John admits he doesn't even know what colour this person's eyes are. They're blue or green. That's the kind of stunt that can get you dumped. Put it in a song though, suddenly it skyrockets to one of the greatest love songs of all time. How wonderful life In fact, music tends to make bad writing feel so much better. One of my favourite songs is uh, Eleanor by The Turtles. Gee, I think you're swell. You really do me well. You're my pride and joy, etc. Try to get away with the word etc. in any other context, and, um, well, I mean, you can't. Then again, that's the same song that features the lyrics, I really think you're groovy, let's go out to a movie. So, what the hell do I know? Adding music can actually hide a lot of the poetry. Let's talk Stevie Wonder. No New Year's Day. Now, maybe this is an obvious thing to Stevie Wonder fans, but something about the music has allowed me to sing the lyrics to I Just Called to Say I Love You for years at karaoke, at weddings, on the radio, and it was only this most recent Sunday night that I noticed for the first time The first line of the song is about January. The second line is about February. The third line is about March. The fourth line is about April. The fifth line is about May. And then June, before July, August, September. Music, weirdly, somehow kept that really obvious structure hidden from me after all these years. By the same token, 
sticking to that structure so fiercely would be considered predictable and lifeless if it was analysed in a work of literature. So I guess all I'm asking is, how do songs survive? I went to a gig at a small pub in Sydney's inner west. This is the Gasoline Pony. I just found joy. I'm as happy as a baby I wanted to come because the singer was Kate Wadey, who had just released an album of love songs from the 1920s through to the 50s called A Hundred Years From Today. Even that title confidently refers to the timelessness of these songs. I turned up maybe 15 minutes early and there were one or two small groups watching as the band set up. And as soon as Kate Wadey started singing, as if summoning the hordes of love believers, there was a crowd. I could watch people coming in off the street as they heard her. By the end of the first set, the crowd was leaking out the doors and spilling onto the road. What is it about these songs? Jazz standards like this seem to have cracked the code of being timeless. And these songs were written before civil rights, the sexual revolution, and mid-century feminism. A whole bunch of jazz standards make the Richard Mercer playlist. Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, Frank Sinatra, through to Nora Jones and Michael Bublé. Whatever you think of them, jazz standards are still pop songs. And they obviously hold the key to, um, something. I wanted to know, how have these songs lasted? What makes someone perform these songs now? How can they resonate? What if I, um, just asked? Timely. Hello. How are you? Pretty good, how are you? Kate Wadey greets me like an old friend. Her partner was giving bass lessons in the next room. Someone is practicing the trumpet down the hall. This is someone who I'd met once before. And now I've been invited into a house, sitting on a shaggy rug on the floor of a lamp-lit room, sipping tea in the afternoon. Being a music journalist, if that's what this is, is delightful. Did you grow up with jazz music at all? No, actually. Mm -hmm. My parents are sort of from England and kind of 70s rockers, actually. So mum mum and dad are much more into sort of contemporary pop music of the 70s. Um, I grew up listening a lot to Michael Jackson, hmm. Janet Jackson, Mariah Carey, hmm. Whitney Houston, you know, all those kind of, that was kind of my staple. I'd sit and so like, play the So was you singing like jazz standards like a rebellion against your family in the womb? <laughs> Only to the fact that they actually love it. Like they <laughs> yeah, love the music them. and I get to kind of show them songs now that I don't think they would have yeah, okay. naturally have listened to. Like they definitely don't are not mm. very familiar with the repertoire at all. My mum's Irish background, so I grew up with a lot of Irish folk music and Irish dancing as well. Mm-hmm. Um which makes no correlation to really jazz music, but it does in a way. Um that it's old music. <laughs> yeah, okay. That I kind of always felt re- really resonated with me. But um the jazz has been very much since I moved to Sydney kind of pursuing it as a as a gig and as a thing that I like to learn about and sing. So, so you didn't like study music as a degree no, or anything like that? No, That's incredibly frustrating only because like listening to the album, like it comes off so easy or natural for you. Especially something like me who did study jazz and found it a long time to even like absorb heaps of these songs. Mm. You were like just dancing through most of these. Well, I guess, I guess I, when I sing the jazz songs, I don't, I'm not very, um, I kind of stick really true to the the melodies as I hear them. So I don't necessarily have a great depth in terms of harmony, you know, learning kind of how to colour 
the melodies and improvise a lot. Um, I'd like to get better at that. Mm. But currently I sing it pretty straight and I by in no way am comparing myself to somebody like Billie Holiday, but she kind of sung things very straight with her own interpretation mm. um, and I feel as though that's kind of where I'm coming from in that I'm not jazz trained but I just like to listen to the melodies as raw as they are, which is what is brings me back to kind of why I love singing this music because the songs themselves is something that I feel like for the first time that I can connect with better than any other style of music that I've ever sung. Yeah, wow. More so than any pop stuff or soul stuff. I mean, I really love singing soul and R&B of the 50s and 60s music mm. as well, um, predominantly rather than the more contemporary stuff. Mm. But jazz just feels like I can give it my own interpretation better than any other style I've ever yeah. done. So, I guess, I guess mm. maybe that's what I meant almost, that like, because you're, yeah, it's not like you're, you're not forcing yourself to scat or improvise over these things. So as a result, the songs come so, uh, uh, I know, simply, I suppose. Perhaps. It's really great. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have heard incredible jazz-trained musicians mm. that, as singers, shall I say, that um, are able to colour the music in the way that, you know, a improvised piano might do or an improvised mm. trumpet player might do. Um, I don't identify with being able to do that, not to say I can't, I just don't. Well, not I don't that you have need that. To, di- really. I don't have that. That's not part of the musician that I am at the moment. Mm. It doesn't feel right to be doing it just yet. Yeah. Okay. Of course. So, yeah. Well. Um. Okay. So you start off the album with something like "Sweet Lorraine," which I, mm-hmm. uh, I only know from I think it's like I think I know Bing Crosby and uh, I know one of the recording. Who does? It? Uh, oh, I know Harry Nilsson does a cover. Oh, of it, okay. Which, really. And with Dr. John. And so like, uh, like <laughs> amazing. I, 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 don't, heard I, don't, I don't know it as like a like a jazz standard almost. Yeah, so. I haven't heard a lot of people doing it, but the person that I heard do it was Nat King Cole's yeah. trio. So I heard him singing it, and I was like, oh, that is just so beautiful. So <laughs> launched the album with that. Yeah, it's a cool song. I guess I learned it um, at the time when all of the marriage equality was happening as mm. well. So um, the lyrics being quite in the past identified with a male singer singing about Sweet Lorraine, who's a woman, and he can't wait to marry her and lead her down the aisle. Mm. And I think just with the current political movement that's just happened, I found that I never wanted to change the gender, mm. um, as I actually don't with hardly any of the songs. Mm. I sing. And yeah, it just felt really fitting. So I started to really enjoy doing it on gigs and people could really identify with what I was singing about because the lyrics really are talking about they can't wait. So this is that person how you can't would, wait to you I guess what I'm what I what I'm really interested in is why why like how these songs fit into the modern realm. And I guess it sounds like you're naturally sort of doing that. Like you're just mm. finding your like like you're right, these songs were written, uh, if that one was like 20s or 30s or whatever, it's yeah. just like finding that in to make it modern. Like does that mean these songs, uh, I mean I guess a, a pure example of that being a jazz standard that I don't really recognise, uh, it obviously still has relevance in some way. It does and, you know, there's a lot of these songs that have really old school content, mm-hmm. you know, where um, they are sung by women. But for example, I'm just thinking um, a song called Black Coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a the bridge in the... The middle section of the song goes, um, a man is born to go a-loving and a woman's born to weep and fret and stay at home and tend her oven and drown herself and drown her past regrets with coffee and cigarettes. 
And I just think it's, I really enjoy singing that now because it is so, it's very, or it's almost ironic now yeah, to, so to be singing it. Like, like saying that is such a challenge, of the, I guess. I yeah, and I, do, I definitely feel a very, much like I don't connect with those lyrics, but rather it's awesome to be able to sing them now to go, this stuff does not happen anymore. Yeah, okay. Or it does, but, it you know, it's definitely not in my sphere, thankfully, and I am an empowered female in that lives in, in Sydney. World, yeah. yeah, and it's cool to kind of sing these songs with reflection. And I often have a very older audience or an ageing audience, mm. should I say, um, where I'm able to kind of say, hey, this song, this song says this. This song is majorly flawed, yeah. This song, and, and, and they all often are very happy that I'm singing these songs now that mm. there is irony and that this is not the case or shouldn't be the case mm. a lot of the time. So it, I think it's that has come quite naturally to me. Obviously, I uh, when I'm singing, I make the, bring them my own, give them my own interpretation. Yeah. But sometimes I have to think about it and go, hang on a second, I don't think it's appropriate that I sing this song. Um, there are definitely songs that I refuse to sing because um, they uh, should have only been sung by African-American people. Yeah, of course. Basically there's racially indifferent songs that I just think... I'm not, I just don't feel like comfortable singing. I feel like that every time you hear someone sing um, Summertime or something like that, like it's oh yeah. so loaded with like, um, yeah, uh, like the, yeah, the, the role of African Americans in a very particular time frame and you, yes. and it's, it's very, and, and the song Shine. I don't know if you're familiar with no. the song Shine. Um, it's basically of, of a shoe shiner. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it's a, he, he's, it's probably written by his perspective of being a, Basically, a slave. And suddenly, to, if, if you sing it, doesn't really. It's not. <laughs> yeah, no, and I just can't do it. Like yeah. I just, I fundamentally disagree with um, me as a white woman mm. singing it because it's not something I can sing. Well, so the album is like <laughs> even the album itself is a uh, hundred years from today, and mm. I guess that's. I mean, my gut instinct is that that's referencing that basically these songs are essentially a hundred years old. Exactly, really. and also that that they'll continue. They for will another? continue to have another hundred years, I'm sure, and the content of that song is really um, live life for today because in 100 years' time you won't be around. Yeah, okay. Basically. So that, as in the lyrics that follow in that song are um, don't save your kisses, just pass them around. Yeah. You'll find my reason is logically sound. Who's going to know that you've passed them around 100 years from today? Cute. I mean, it's that is, cute. It is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit like <laughs> it is. So don't like, have a sleep around. Yeah, yeah, totally. The rest of the lyrics kind of are quite. They're quite <laughs> sweet, actually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I think it's fun. Uh, would you think maybe this is into like a whole other territory? But like, mm. are, there, are there songs of today that you think will last a hundred years, or is it like these are the kind of uh, they're the songs that already have shown their timelessness or something? Mm, it's hard to say, but I imagine that there'll be timeless songs now. There like must Shake be. It Off and all Taylor Swift's back catalog <laughs> and Miley Cyrus and Carly Rae Jepsen. And... You really don't know, hey. Mm. I really don't know what's going what's gonna to last. I'm actually really not sure. Yeah. I do have a background in acting, so I actually studied an acting degree um, of theatre and film, and part of what I think I enjoy about singing these songs is that whether I've experienced them or not, or whether I can put myself into these mm. uh, songs, which I do, I'm almost, they're almost characters, they're almost settings in which I may or may not have experienced, but I quite genuinely feel like I can go there mm. as, you know, you can 
think about what it might be like for this setting or this scene to happen in your life and it can feel as valid whether you have one, you know, if you've had any heartbreak, which, you know, I guess I have, um, you can apply it to all these different kind of songs. Mm. And I often find these beautiful love songs that I sing, I find I connect more with the sad ones. I mean, yeah, I was, I was saying as much as <laughs> you know, their love the songs, they are, they are love songs that are about like waiting or love leaving or... Love having just gone. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess they're... I guess happy songs, uh, happy love songs are a little less emotive or they yeah. less storytelling because people don't write so many love songs about really great positive things. They yeah. often write them when it's hard or when... It's gone, or when you're missing someone, or you know, you don't write about stuff when everything's great. Yeah, as much, you know, you just rather if there's shit going down. Yeah, that's when you kind of want to express it. Yeah, I mean, I know uh, Kurt Cobain wrote that it's impossible to write happy songs, Mm -hmm. or that it's just really easy to write uh, angry or sad songs because when you're angry or sad, there is a very specific thing that is making you sad or angry. But in order to be happy, like <laughs> the planets must align, there must be like a hundred right. thousand things that are going right that is keeping your mood up. But like one single thing going wrong, well, then you're sad and then you can write the song. So, yeah, I guess I've, I definitely connect a lot more with, not to say all of my repertoire is sad, mm. you know, content, but yeah, it's pretty fun to get into emotionally when when there's a bit of heartache or yeah. a bit of confusion or... And even then, like, especially, like, I guess it is the taunt between, like, these kind of emotional lyrics, but these kind of, um, I can't describe any, like, bouncy or jaunty little jazz rhythms, I suppose. Well, that's another thing, you know. Uh, this style of jazz music has such... Uh, my, my opinion is that they're beautiful chords with a, incredible melodies over the top mm. that just fit so beautifully mm. in with each other. So even if you took the lyrics away... It would sound wonderful, mm. but then you then so that as as well as great lyrics, just kind of put it into this setting where yeah. you know it goes into the the minor and it goes into the bridge and you go oh my heart this just <laughs> pulls on all the strings like and then just musically and then alone, resolve, they can musically take you there, alone yeah. which probably I won't go too much into but I I find it amazing how this music kind of toys with melody mm. and chords and then lyrics and it just makes it all fit. And resolves in weird places, and yeah. you know, if I compare it to like I don't know, Round Midnight, which is like a felonious monk tune, like mm-hmm. is also on here, which also you, I know, again, it just seems very kind of natural and uh, kind of easy. Like you've just got like a whole range of stuff on here; it's great, like, mm. and doesn't come across forced or anything like that. Which, That's good, yeah. excellent. <laughs> so you're nailing it, I suppose. Um, one song. Thank can you. I ask about? Um, I cover the waterfront because yeah. I know that as. Oh no! Well, how did you find that song? So I heard um, Billie Holiday sing it, mm-hmm. and I was—I remember distinctly driving to work, and I was listening to that song, and I cried in the car. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing work. at your discomfort right now, <laughs> crying on I the was, way. Oh gosh! Here we go, <laughs> Can't being an emotional wreck again. <laughs> Every interview I do, I just make someone cry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just—I heard that version of it, mm. and with the verse, there's a verse that a lot of a lot of singers or people who do it don't always put the verse in, mm. um, but it really sets it up and I heard her singing it so decided to, 
want to learn it and started performing it and I just love it. Yeah. I can't ever do it the justice though that I had first originally. As in like you always com- are you comparing your version to Billy Holiday or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I guess like, I guess I had I guess it's like I it's doesn't the feel quite there, yeah. there yet. I can't quite get it the way that she does it, I don't think. It's almost the, just the way that it's recorded and with the beautiful band and mm. um it really takes me into a scene mm. of someone really just waiting for their lover and the way that she sings it and the way that she does, you know, a lot of her music mm. is just so raw and so emotional and just felt great. You know, I just think it's such a great song. Mm. So, yeah, I'd definitely heard her version before any others that I had heard. It was inspired by a book about a journalist who walks along the actual waterfront covering all the news articles on mm. the boats and ships and things like that. And then it got sort of translated to be about, like, watching the shorelines for, like, your lover to come. Or, like, yeah, well, I kind of imagine. So it's, I I always imagine it like a, a fisherman or a, um, as in me being a, a, a woman who's waiting for their lover mm. to come back, who's away for months and months and months on end. And that's kind of what I imagined, mm. you know. And I, and I take myself back 100 years ago to a time when we didn't have phones and social media and we like, you're having so many months away from just, your lover. Yeah. It's like, are you going to come back? Mm. I don't know. Are you going to be alive? Actually, re- reality of that, and you know, I think about times of the war that, you know, people would just go and you couldn't have spoken to them yeah. at all. I don't know. I just think that would have been. But the it is worst. such a world away from it. Like, like, you're right. Um, and like, as someone who's been in a long distance relationship, it's just like, oh, well, just message or Skype them or call them immediately. And it's, it's weird how you can, that can still feel like crap, even though we are taking that amazing step forward for granted at the same Absolutely. time. Absolutely. And also there's a song that I do on here, um, How Deep Is The Ocean? Hmm. I always do this stupid joke in my gigs where I go, hey Siri, <laughs> how do you, so dumb. I should stop saying that stupid joke. <laughs> well, because as long as you're aware that it's stupid, it's fine. <laughs> really crap. Um, but that I believe that the writer of that song um, wrote that song about his partner who had just passed away. Mm. So it's sort of it's similar. The way that it's set up is that these rhetorical questions, how high is the sky, how deep is the ocean, how much do I love you, mm. you know, it's endless. Yeah. And, and it doesn't actually explicitly say that they've gone forever, but rather... Just in the nature of that question, it kind of is. Like, at least for that person, it feels. And like if I ever lost you, how much would I cry? Yeah. How deep is the ocean? How high is the sky? God, I can picture you crying on the drive home again. I know. Never so again. Just <laughs> overthinking it. So beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so the lyrics just destroy you, first of all. Like, that is your interaction with songs. Like, those lyrics need to be. Uh, I mean, it. It helps when obviously musically everything mm. is 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 in harmony. Because it's like. Do you know? And I have this song. That is so random. It's not jazzy at all. It's from Alt J. Yeah, okay. Um, and it's called Every Other Freckle. Yeah. Oh, I love that song. And yeah, yeah. I just think that's like the it's most like the romantic, weirdest, sexy, song. romantic song ever. I think he says like, I want to. Um, I want to turn you in, inside turn you inside packet. out and lick you like a chip packet. God, it's good. I want to share your mouthful. <laughs> yeah. I want to. Even just that notion of like every other freckle. Like even there's something about the attention to detail there that is. Like, yeah, and I want to be the. I want to be every shower that showers you. I want to, mm. I don't know. There's just something deeply like romantic and yeah, fun about something that song. in the loins makes you move which alongside is, the music. Which... Felt, I mean, I guess I was like, oh, you know, when you are in love, mm. all those bits about someone, you go, like, yes, mm. I love that. Mm. Mm. And 
they did not write songs like that a hundred years ago because I don't think you could be as explicit. Yeah. Whereas now it's like I'm obviously a woman You're that like lives finding... in Sydney. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. shit, that song's so great. You know? <laughs> like, so... I have freckles as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, more that I found myself thinking about someone else that way. Yeah, okay. So that's why I was like, yes, that's great. Mm. So that's a totally random. That one sticks in my head a lot, actually, yeah. as a, one of the most romantic songs that I've ever heard. It is a disgusting love song. Yeah, Good I think answer. it's so great. So can, <laughs> as opposed to all of what I've just been saying about this very cliche romanticism, um, I also like really fat, dirty hip hop beats as well, you mm. know, but they're not romantic at all. I guess that thing about like <laughs> having a being cliche romanticism, like that's the whole thing about love and this exploration of love and having songs about love is probably the most cliche thing that can ever possibly happen, right? Yes. It's like, but we can't drag ourselves away. Like, regardless of whatever happens, those love songs will still be there, just like in a hundred years or more or a yep. hundred years from now or whatever way you want to think about it. Like, mm. some songs are timeless and, like, even we know they're cliche. Like, yes. they still drag us back But in. that's why it's so good because love is so universal in that kind of way. And often it, it's often referred to as your partner lover or someone who you've been romantically involved in, mm. but it does have a lot of other connotations to yeah, people that you're just missing. It might be family or friends or your dog. I don't know. <laughs> like you could take it to anything. It could be an extension of you. I don't know. There's lots mm. of other versions of it, but often, you know, most of the time we talk about love songs, it's about someone who you wanted to have been romantic with mm. or have been. Did you ever listen to Richard Mercer's Love Song Dedications? I did. Mm. when I, But years ago, it would have been a really, really long time ago, I just loved his voice and I always just found it so funny, some of the, um, yeah, it is some a of weird the choices of, like... of songs people wanted to hear. <laughs> yeah, of course. Like, whoa, that is out. <laughs> I know he, uh, he, he wants uh, my favourite story about him on air um, as much as I've been, because I'm so deep into he Richard Mercer's career, obviously, I'm at the sure. moment, is like uh, someone calls up and asks for Black Sabbath's Paranoid. Um, yeah, right. As a love song. And for he, he, as like a legal reason, he can't play songs that aren't on the Mix 106.5 playlist. Oh. And so on air, he has to convince this guy to change his song he's going to dedicate to Did his lover. Did he do it? Yeah, and ended up choosing You're Beautiful by James Blunt. Oh, I like, hate that song <laughs> so much. It's like something about his baritone voice just makes he, he can convince you that your he's, favorite song is actually James Bunce, Your Beautiful. He's actually a, basically a counselor. <laughs> exactly. That's what, is that what made that, that show stand? Like, that's what makes you remember that song, that, that, that show. Because he really is, did have a way of yeah, speaking to people just that was dragging their emotion quite, out. Yeah, quite genuinely sounded like he cared. Mm. Um, then he'll whack he on Leanne Rhymes, you know? And then, it, <laughs> yes. Yeah. My gosh, there were so many, so many times driving around in the car where it would just be on, but great songs, you know. Mm. I guess it's the song choices were often those kind of easy listening tunes yeah. that you want to put on when you're like, you know. And they were, like, most the of the time, they were of the day. Like, it's so mm. rare that you would hear. A Billy Holiday song. You, you, there is occasional, like you get Absolutely. some Eddie James and you get some Frank Sinatra. You get the and, Dido. Yeah. <laughs> now true. it was just like, I, yeah, James Blunt. Yeah. Gosh, why? Why James Blunt? Beautiful. God, I don't know why that song just makes me want to die. I, I think it's because it. um, uh, it's about him seeing. He's on drugs after a night out, and he sees a woman who's with another guy, and he just desires her. 
and right. he like he has made up this whole relationship between the two of them and he's like you can leave now, but like I'm letting you know you're beautiful, which is just like the most self entitled dickish right. you can imagine. They have you just go like, how dare you, how James? How dare you do that? <laughs> yeah. And I just yeah, the whole thing he's just irritates me <laughs> too much. Well, I'm so glad we sussed that one out. Well, yeah. thanks so much, Kate Wadey. Thank you. Um, I'll put a link to buying your album on the show notes. Please um, do. Or it's a beautiful, beautiful stuff. Thank you so much for disseminating these some of these uh, uh, classics for me. Thank great. you. Thanks for talking to me. Just great. To, <laughs> oh, no, excuse me while I disappear. Then, but it's oh, oh, angel eyes. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. See, it all you comes full circle. <laughs> um, thanks so much, Kate Wadey. Thank you. I'll speak soon. Excuse me. While I disappear. So what did I learn? Well, I mean, jazz is good. Obviously, the constantly changing nature of jazz and live jazz allows these songs to last. Like, we're so happy to hear them reinvented over and over again. Even their meaning can change or can update for the performers. But it's a bit different for the produced pop songs we know. No matter how many times we hear them, we actually want to hear them the same way again. And if it deviates even a little bit, it kind of bugs us. Kate also mentioned this idea of acting, getting in a character in order to perform these songs and make them work. Listening back to the interview, as I've just done now, there's one moment which I've been thinking about more and more. He really did have a way of speaking to people that was quite, yeah, quite genuinely sounded like he cared, whether he did or not. I mean, I already know that Richard Mercer has a kind of persona, like the love god, so to speak, which I've always thought of as a kind of hyper version of himself. Like, that's par for the course in this kind of thing. But Kate Wadey saying that he sounded genuine, like he cared. Whether he did or not. Or maybe, I wonder, if from the beginning this character was always intended to be what he became or if it just sort of... Uh, hello? Hi, uh, my name's Steph. Hi, hi Steph. Um, sorry, I, <laughs> um, I need to let you know that I'm recording all my conversations. Uh, it's just for legal, for this, is that okay? Cool. Um, and okay, I also need to put you on speakerphone, otherwise it doesn't record. Sorry, no one ever calls me. Um, sorry. Okay. Uh, what can I do for you, Steph? Uh, so I'm I'm calling. I wanted to send out a dedication. Oh, oh no, I'm no, I'm I'm looking for Richard Mercer. I'm not the um, like a, this isn't love song dedications. Oh. This is a it's a podcast. <laughs> Sorry, okay, okay, well, I must have dialed the wrong number. No, it's Thank fine. you, bye. <laughs> Weird. That was Missing Richard Mercer, featuring Tom Hogan and Bonnie Lee Dodds. Thanks to Kate Wadey for being in this episode. You can find her album, A Hundred Years From Today, on Spotify and iTunes. And I'll put a link in the show notes. Tell your friends and subscribe on iTunes. If you've got a story to share about Richard Mercer, or maybe you are, in fact, Richard Mercer, please drop us a line. Send an email to missingrichardmercer at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Tom Hogan. And of course, we need to thank Richard Mercer for all the good times. Visit missingrichardmercer.com for more information. 
and thank you for listening. Um, hi, uh, I'm. My name's Tom. I'm just looking for. I'll call uh, back later if you leave your phone number. That was good. <laughs> um, hi, my name's Tom. Um, I was um, looking for Richard Mercer, please. Um, and uh, thank you so much. You can give me a call back on.